Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Kaiju Carnage. I'm your host, Cal the Kaiju Guy. Alright guys, so today is the first episode of my new saga that I'm doing that I'm calling Inspirations and basically the point of this saga is I'm going to cover movies that were either directly inspired by or a remake of either King Kong or Godzilla. Not just the original films, but any of the films that were in the franchise. If it was inspired by either a Godzilla or a King Kong film, I'm going to cover it. Uh, this saga is only going to be about 8, 10 episodes, something like that, and this is the first one. And the movie that I'm covering is the 1976 King Kong film. Now, <laughs> I have a very love-hate relationship with this movie. Like, there are parts of it that I really, really like. I think uh, the locations that they shot in were gorgeous. Visually, like, it was... It's pretty great, especially for its time. The uh, special effects, like the animatronics that they would use and everything is just... Like it was pretty, it was pretty good. Like the big giant Kong hand that would come into the uh, into the room and like grab Dwan. I'll, I'll jump into the pronunciation of that name here in a moment if you haven't seen the movie. But whenever he would reach in and grab Dwan, uh, like you know that was a giant animatronic hand and like things like that. I thought the movie was was pretty awesome on, but the other parts. Like, the dialogue was pretty, pretty rough at times. Um, I've never been a fan of the quote-unquote creepy, pervert-type uh, style that they went with for Kong. Like, <laughs> just some of the ways that he looks at Dwan in this movie and, like, the faces that he makes is just, like, it's cringe. 100% cringe. And, um, I just don't care for those parts of the movie. So, yeah. And amongst other things, which I'm really gonna, uh, jump all up into whenever I'm talking about, you know, this episode. But I hadn't seen the movie in roughly 15 years prior to doing this episode. Uh, the reason why I decided to go on ahead and do this one is back in February, it got announced that the movie would be being released for the first time on Blu-ray in a collector's edition, which in the collector's edition has a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, stuff and some of the bonus features. It has the theatrical version of the movie, which is what I'm more familiar with, and it also has the extended TV edition to the movie, Yes, there is a TV edition of the film that it premiered on NBC, and it's extended. It has, you know, more scenes in it, and I'm going to jump into that later. But both versions of the movie are available on this Blu-ray collector's edition. It has a brand new piece of artwork for the cover, and, you know, I just got it, and I was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this episode and knock it out. So, okay, guys. I've pretty much wasted enough of y'all's time talking about that, and it's time to jump right into the movie. The director of the film was a man by the name of John Gillerman, 
and it was produced and like and I say it was produced by this guy but he was really the shot caller 100% of the movie. He just didn't what Marion C Cooper was for the original film, that's what this guy is for this new film and uh forgive me if I mispronounce his name like uh he's Italian. So <laughs> uh his name is Dino De Laurentiis. And from this point on, I'm going to refer to him as Dino, because that's what's easier. <laughs> but uh, he was the producer of the film, and, you know, naturally it stars Jeff Bridges, a very young-looking Jeff Bridges, which, if, uh, you, you know, it just, it looks, it looks odd for me to see, <laughs> to see him after I've seen him in so many movies where he's, he's older, especially now, nowadays, whenever he makes certain movies, but, um... It was very. It's very odd to see him look so young and just have that that glorious hair that he had whenever uh, making this movie. And also, this movie marks the film debut of Jessica Lange. So, and she was looking top notch in this movie. Like, can't really say the same for her acting abilities <laughs> in this film, but she was uh, she was very very beautiful uh, in this movie. So that's pretty much uh, the biggest names that were going to be attached to the movie. Now, there are two rumors as to how this movie came about. And there's really no way to verify which one is true because, well, I mean, big name guys out there both say that their version is true. The first version is there was an ABC executive and his name was Michael Eisner. And he wanted to make a remake of King Kong. Like, he just watched it one day, and he was just like, I love that movie. I want to make a modern update of it. It's been 33 years, so let's, uh, I'm sorry, 43 years. So let's go ahead and, you know, get this done and make this movie. So he pitches it to a man by the name of Barry Diller. And he was a big shot executive at Paramount and he and so once Barry hears about it he's like okay I'm with it let's do it he goes out he hires Dino to be the producer of the film and they go from there Dino himself however claims that he's the sole reason as to why you know, the movie came about and everything, and he says that it was his idea because his daughter had a King Kong poster in her bedroom, and whenever he would go in in the mornings to wake her up, he would see the poster, and he wouldn't think nothing of it, like, okay, she's just, she's a fan of King Kong, whatever, and one day, <clears throat> he was also, like, a friend of uh, Barry Diller, and whenever Barry was saying, like, hey, we should do a new monster movie coming up. Uh, this is it. This is around 1974 that this conversation would have taken place. And he's like, hey, we should do a new monster movie. At which point Dino suggested, let's just remake Kong. And Barry said yes. And they went with it from there. So two different accounts, two entirely different ways on how the movie came about. I don't know which is true and which one isn't. I mean, obviously, one of them's not true. <laughs> I mean, uh, but take that as you will, pretty much. 
So they enter negotiations for the movie. And since it was pitched to Paramount, Paramount was, you know, the studio that they were in negotiations with to try and make the movie. Part of the negotiations that they would do was that Paramount would cover half of the budget, of the proposed budget. Now, the proposed budget was about $24 million, give or take. So that would basically mean that Paramount would cover $12 million of the budget and the studio would cover the other half. But if Paramount uh, covered that much of the budget, they would also get the distribution rights for, you know, uh, putting that out in theaters and all of that. And they would also get a, a percentage of what it makes because of the distribution rights. And the only other way that they said that they would do it is if, and this was a big one, the original film rights could be bought for the original film, or at least be put on lease from RKO General. Like that... That was going to be a big deal because RKO at this point in time, they're very, very selective about who they let deal with the Kong property. Like they had recently worked with Toho and leased them the rights to Kong for two films for Godzilla, um, uh, for King Kong versus Godzilla in 1962. And then as well as an, as a, a film called King Kong escapes that was in no way, Related to the King Kong versus Godzilla film. It's two separate editions of Kong or renditions of Kong that they did. And RKO wouldn't let them use anything else. So they thought, eh, this might be kind of rough to try and get the rights from, uh, from RKO. Well, <laughs> as it happens, old Dino, who's the producer of the movie... He knows lots and lots of people, and he's pretty friendly with lots of people, and he knew the CEO to RKO. So he reaches out to that guy. He's like, hey, man, like, scratch my back. We're wanting to do this uh, this King Kong movie and all that. Why don't you go on ahead and sell, sell the rights so we can uh, do this movie? And so RKO said, okay, we'll do it. So they sold the film rights to Paramount and to Dino for $200,000 plus a percentage of whatever movie, uh, I believe it was a 5%. Uh, oh, wow. I just got really tongue twisted. I'm sorry, guys. But uh, I believe it was 5% of the total gross that the movie makes would, all, it would also be what uh, RKO got. And... So everything went pretty well when according to plan, the remake to King Kong is officially underway. And so the writing process began and Dino met with a man by the name of Lorenzo Simple Jr. And he was working on a movie called Three Days of the Condor at the time. And, but he's a big fan of the original King Kong film as most film enthusiasts are. And whenever Dino reached out to him and was basically like, hey, I want you to uh, come up with a screenplay for me uh, for King Kong, Lorenzo immediately dropped everything that he, he was doing to go work on King Kong. Like, that's just how, how bad he wanted to work on a King Kong film. And 
that's just all it was. That's just all it was. Do it. He just he just canceled whatever it was he was on. Uh, he's like, nope, I'm done. I'm gonna go work on King Kong instead. And two of the main things that he said from the get go that he wanted this movie to have was that it wasn't going to be a period piece taking place in the 30s. He wanted it to take place in at the time modern day, which would have been the 70s. And instead of Kong climbing the Empire State Building and meeting his demise there, he would climb the very newly created World Trade Center. The World Trade Center, uh, this movie came out in 1976. The World Trade Center had only been open for like three years at that time. And it opened in uh, pretty early in 1973, I believe. And so they decided that they wanted to use the World Trade Center as opposed to the Empire State Building. However, the Empire State Building did get mentioned by Dwan at some point in the movie whenever Kong was holding her and she was talking about how she was afraid of heights or something like that. And um, she screams at Kong that whenever she was little, her parents took her to the Empire State Building and I believe she says she got stuck in an elevator. And so the Empire State Building did get mentioned, at least, because the Empire State Building is every part as iconic as Kong whenever you're dealing with something related to King Kong. So at least it did get mentioned. And also, not only did he uh, want it to be taking place in present day and be on the World Trade Center, he wanted to make the film more funny. He felt that the original film was kind of like he wasn't bad mouthing it by saying this, but he felt that it was kind of arrogant, like everything was just kind of straight to the point and all of that. And so he decided that he wanted to make it more funny, uh, throw in a pretty good amount of jokes. And from that point on, he pretty much just really started changing a lot of things from the original film, which has irked a lot of you know, diehard King Kong fans, me, I'm not really, I'm not really concerned with it. I mean, I would definitely call this movie more of a reimagining than a remake, but I've always been of the mindset of if you want a remake and you want it to be almost word for word, frame for frame, the original film or original book or anything like that, then just watch the original. Like, like there's no point in fooling with a remake if all you're going to do is just completely remake it like I said word for word, frame for frame, shot for shot and all that. I mean there's no there's no point. It's just it's just a waste of time. So, you know, I've never really been too upset that so many things were changed. And one of the biggest things that changed was the whole point and purpose of going to Skull Island. In the original was because Carl was wanting to make a movie. And everyone that went there was like his, you know, his actors and, and all of that stuff. That is nowhere to be found in this film. Nowhere. Like, another big thing that was going on during the 70s was an energy crisis. And so he wanted to incorporate the energy crisis into the movie. So instead of it being about some people going to Skull Island to try and make a movie. Instead, he made it about some oil tycoons that pretty much find out through satellite images 
that Skull Island could possibly have uh, oil reserves there, basically. And that they were going to go to Skull Island to try and get the oil from, from the reserves. And so the whole thing about, you know, movies, Carl, Carl, all that stuff, it's just, it's gone. It's not mentioned. It's not, it's just forget it. Pretend it doesn't exist because it's not there. <laughs> but, um, so they decided to go full on with the energy crisis and at the very beginning of the movie, you see that they have, they already have a map of Skull Island. And originally, in the first draft that they did for the movie, they were going to find the map of Skull Island in the library of the Vatican. You heard that correctly. Yes, it is ridiculous. And yes, I'm very glad they decided to drop that. Because why in the world would the Vatican have a map to Skull Island? That's just, you know, like, any any issue that you can think up with, with that particular subplot is, you know... There was supposed to be a whole little subplot about them going to the Vatican and finding the uh, the the map and trying to get it from the Vatican to steal it and then to try and get away like you know like it was just it was this whole little subplot that they tried to throw in and whenever old Dino caught wind of it he's like no we're not messing with that like just no and so they changed it to they just got some uh satellite images from uh the military I believe it was another big major change that they made from the original. There are no dinosaurs in this movie. That has really bothered a lot of fans because, you know, dinosaurs are a big part of Skull Island. Like, just the monsters, the all kinds of little things that was there and all that. And also, you know, I'm sure people was looking forward to seeing an updated, more modern fight scene of Kong versus the T-Rex. And... The fans just did not get that whenever this film got released. But the reason why they decided to not folk, to have more dinosaurs and monsters and things like that was because they wanted there to be more focus on Kong. I'm sorry, guys. I just yawned <laughs> right, in, right in the middle of my sentence. But uh, they wanted there to be more focus on Kong as well as Dwan. And her little love story that she had going on. And also, you know, they had decided to go with the, with a suitmation for Kong. They figured that it worked out pretty well for Toho with King Kong versus Godzilla and King Kong Escapes. And so they just decided to go with that because they did not want to go with stop motion. Like, stop motion, it was just too expensive, it was too... You know, you they just didn't want to mess with it. <laughs> no, you know, stop motion at this point in time was getting to where it was a it was a dead art in in film. Nobody wanted to mess with it. It just it looked too fake. And Dino was like, "We are not doing stop motion." So they decided to go with suitmation. Well, let's be honest here, guys. You can somewhat buy, you know, depending on the cinematography. And, you know, what they do, you can somewhat buy a man in a giant ape suit as being King Kong. Okay? You can somewhat buy that. 
It's a lot more difficult, especially over here for Western audiences, because we're not buried in tradition of suitmation for kaiju films, but it would be a lot more difficult to sell a man in a T-Rex costume, or two men in a Stegosaurus costume, or, you know, however many men in a Brontosaurus costume. You know, it just, it would look, it just, it wouldn't look right. And it would have got panned. So they didn't want to use suits. They didn't want to use uh, stop motion. The technology just honestly did not exist at the time to see, create it with uh, computer-generated images. And so they were like, okay, we're just not using dinosaurs. But they did happen to throw in a giant boa constrictor, which has a face uh, unlike any other boa constrictor that's you've ever seen before they never mention the name of this particular boa like you know it's obviously too large to be a titan boa but um like <laughs> like i wish that they would just that that's that's one of my gripes about the movie i just wish that they would have put more other types of monsters in the movie you know because in the original I'll, I'll jump to all that here in a second i'm sorry so anyway, simple, you know, they made those, uh, they made those changes, more focus on Kong and Dwan, no stop motion, no dinosaurs or anything like that. So simple wrote a 40 page outline in just a few days. And that's whenever he presented it to Dino. And it was at that point that the Vatican subplot was, uh, was dropped. They decided to go with uh, spy satellite and all that kind of stuff. So he's like, okay, we pretty much have the tone, you know, how we're gonna, how the movie's going to feel which monsters are going to be in there, go write me a draft. So, Simple goes and writes a 140-page draft in a month. He gives it to Dino. Dino looks at it. He cut it down a little bit and everything. Cut. I think he cut it down to about 120 pages after uh, he got a hold to it. They changed a few more things, just a little minor stuff, nothing really worth mentioning. And <clears throat> by the time they finally got done, <clears throat> pardon me, guys, the script was about 110 pages, I believe, <clears throat> and everything was good to go, and they were pr pretty much going to be set for a Christmas release in uh, 1976, and so now it was time for the casting, and this one might blow some of y'all's minds. There was a big major lady that everyone knows that actually went to audition for the part of Dwan in this movie, and she is one, easily one of the greatest actresses to ever live, Meryl Streep. So she goes and auditions for the role of Dwan. She did not get it, not for her acting merit, not because of, you know, they wanted to have an unknown or anything, but because producer Dino flat out said she's too ugly for King Kong. Those were his words. He said, she's too ugly for King Kong. We need somebody that's that's gorgeous and just stunningly beautiful. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not saying Meryl Streep is the most gorgeous thing to ever walk the face of the planet, but she ain't ugly. And like, you know, I just... Uh, like, like, to tell Meryl Streep you can't have a role because you're too ugly. Man, that's like... I'll tell you. 
So Meryl Streep, uh, she was in the doing the audition uh, whenever she was told that, but it was told in Italian. Uh, Dino looked at his son and said, um, his son's name was Frederico. And so he looks at him and he tells, he tells him she's too ugly for King Kong. What he did not know was that Meryl Streep could understand Italian. And she interrupted him and said, I'm very sorry for disappointing you. And then just got up and left. So that's how that went down. I'm sure that was extremely awkward. So after Meryl Streep, you know, was um, insulted and told you're not going to be in the movie, they offered the part, get this, to Barbara Streisand. Okay? <laughs> like, Meryl Streep is too ugly, but Barbara Streisand is right up our alley. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> oh, boy. But uh, old Barb, she uh, she turned it down. She didn't want no part of uh, King Kong or the monster movie or anything like that. And so then they decided to go with a very young fashion model by the name of Jessica Lange, who had absolutely zero acting experience prior to this film. And it shows because there's a... Uh, there's there's some some acting from her in this movie that just makes you shake your head. I'm not going to lie. But so they decided to get her and then they um got Jeff Bridges with very little to no issues and everything, you know, just standard audition and that pretty much went on for all the other ones. There was nothing really of note to mention as far as the casting goes and all that. So they begin uh filming now, the director of the movie, as I mentioned earlier, his name was John Gillerman. Now, Gillerman, he was pretty much known to be a pretty mean guy to his cast, but he was good at coming up with like great shots and everything, and so that's why Dino wanted him. And sure enough, on set for the movie, he was just being a not-nice-word and treating everybody horribly and <laughs> screaming at them and yelling at them and and all of that, well, he he pretty much um, bit off more the, than he could chew whenever he uh, had a screaming match with the executive producer of the movie, which was a man by the name of Frederico de Lorientes. Yeah, y'all remember that name? Just mentioned him a little while ago. That is Dino's son. And he had a screaming match with him. And so Frederico pretty much reaches out to dear old dad and says, you got to do something with this guy. And Dino came down to the set and pretty much told him, not only do, do you never talk to my son that way again, but you stop treating the cast like this. And Dino kept, he watched him like a hawk throughout the rest of the, uh, the production of the movie and basically, basically told him, if you get out of line, you're fired. And so Gillerman was forced to uh, pretty much be nice and polite to uh, to everybody that was there. Now, Rick Baker, this was the man that actually wore the Kong suit. And he actually helped make the Kong suit. He was pretty good with, uh, you know, making uh, costumes and things like that for film. And so he helped make the uh, King Kong costume, which was, you know, like, it wouldn't just, you look at it, and trust me, it's not just a standard, like, gorilla suit. There was, like, 
you know, like there was a rubber suit that was underneath it that made it have like more of a muscular type uh, look to it and everything. And like, it was just, you know, he helped make it and all of that. But he was not happy with it. And he wanted to go back and try and make another one, but the, uh, they were starting to get behind uh, the schedule that they had put together and all of that. And so they was like, nope, you're just going to have to make it work. And so he put it on and he was never happy with being in that suit during production of the film. And the only reason that he says that it was a, that the suit was able to work like it was, he gave he gives credit to two things. One, the mechanical masks, like being able to have all the different facial expressions for Kong and all of that, he felt really took away. Audiences were more like, oh man, did you see the facial expressions that that mask can make and all of that kind of stuff more than, you know, it took away from just a guy in an ape suit. But also the cinematographer. He said the cinematographer just being able to, uh, in the editing process, being able to do what he did and make things a little bit lighter and darker and all that kind of stuff. Like he was just like, he said that guy helped out a lot to, uh, make the movie, you know, to make the suit look better in the movie. And so that's whatever, uh, uh, what he gives credit for, for that, not looking too crazy. Um, I'm pretty much now just going to give a few little, that pretty much does it for production, but I'm pretty much just going to give a few little, um, like little fun facts and things like that about the, uh, about the movie. Jessica Lang, if you've seen the movie, she's like, they find her adrift out in the ocean. And whenever they find her, you know, she's unconscious and all of that. And she's wearing very little to nothing. A very, very thin, see-through, pretty much black dress because it's wet and doesn't leave a whole lot to the imagination. And, you know, whenever people watch that scene, because she's very beautiful, they see that scene and they're like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a pretty memorable scene. Like, I'm I'm pretty down for it. I mean, what people need to understand is that whenever they were filming that scene, it was off the coast of California, and it was, like, in November, December, whenever they were filming that. Like, she was freezing. Like, that's all she was able to wear. And, like, they had to put her in that dress, then get her wet, and then be like, all right, now just chill out in this raft while we're trying to shoot the scene. She was in that raft for about seven hours. Like, so she was pretty miserable there. Um, another little fun fact was at the end of the film, at the World Trade Center, whenever they're in the plaza and everybody goes to rush uh, King Kong's body, there were 30, they put out a call for extras. Like, we need some extras for the King Kong movie. 30,000 people showed up to be extras <laughs> for that scene. And, um... Whenever they were get, they were trying to film, you know, everybody rushing Kong's body and all of that stuff. Um, the New York police were afraid, or not really just the police, but people that was like over safety and all that OSHA, I guess. I don't know. Like they pretty much were afraid that that many people on this particular plaza of the World Trade Center, it wasn't going to be able to support the weight and it would cause it to collapse. And so. They said, no, we're not doing any more. But Dino had already gotten the shot that he had wanted for the movie. So he said, okay, 
they leave and then they come back later to finish the scene with a much smaller amount of extras <clears throat> far less than 30,000 just a few you know a few hundred or so now there were five different masks that were made for the King Kong suit and each one was capable of doing different uh expressions like one would be capable of like you know lifting its eyebrows and kind of making like a puzzled face there was one that its sole purpose was to make the roar that uh Kong would do whenever he was angry there was one whenever he's like doing his his creepy undressing Dwan with his um his eyes look just I, I hate that mask like <laughs> just I'm not a fan of it so yeah five different masks for multiple different um expression facial expressions that Kong would be able to make and they made a mechanical Kong for this movie it was supposed to be a 100% like robot Kong that was going to be able to walk and all of this stuff. People were super pumped about it and all of that. They couldn't wait to see it on screen. It was 40 foot tall and it weighed about six and a half tons. And whenever they would try to get it to walk or to do anything, first of all, it wouldn't, it wouldn't walk at all. It just couldn't. And it looked so fake and horrible. Like they was going to use it to like, you know, for more, like, faraway shots to have it, like, pick something up and, you know, to show, like, a big feat of strength and all that kind of stuff. And it just, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work out. It would not do what they wanted it to do. And so this big mechanical Kong that was supposed to be, you know, pretty pivotal in um, the climactic scene, like, whenever he's trying to get away from or escaping um, his captors in New York, we pretty much got about a solid five seconds of this giant, stiff, robotic gorilla that is mo like his legs are standing way too close together, and like it just it looked so awkward and so horrible, and so everybody just ended up like like wow, that's the big mechanical Kong that y'all made such a big deal about of and everything, and so yeah. The uh, big mechanical Kong ended up being in a grand total of 14 seconds in the movie, give or take. And yeah, the last little bit of uh, fun facts that I've got for this one is: have if you've ever heard, if you've ever watched King this movie, this version of King Kong, boy, if I could talk today, that'd be great, huh? If you've ever watched this version of King Kong. And you keep hearing King Kong roar, and you're just like, I've heard that that roar before. That sounds familiar. Look no further. I can tell you where it came from. The Lost World. That was made in 1960. That's where uh, Kong's roars came from. And so, release. The movie ended up making $90 million worldwide. It was like, I mean, it was a success financially but it was very split down the middle for critics and fans and to this day you know sometimes a movie gets released way back then in like the 60s or the 70s or something like that and it's panned upon release but then later on you know after 30 or 40 years pass it kind of gets re-looked at and there's a newfound appreciation for it and things like that and 
people kind of change their mind. No, this one still absolutely is split down the middle. Like, <laughs> there's, like, critics are still like, uh, there were some critics that said the only thing that was good about this movie was its visuals and the locations. Everything else was horrible. There was one, one critic that said, um, this remake of King Kong looks better than the original King Kong, but is inferior in literally every other category to the original King Kong. Like, it just, it split people down the middle. And I've got no, like, I don't know. I want to say it's a good movie, but then there are other things about it that make it a bad movie. And I just, you know, I'm kind of also split down the middle, guys. Like I said, I have a very love-hate relationship with this movie. But, um, I mean, hey, hey, you know, I'm doggone. I liked it enough to where I bought the collector's edition on Blu-ray, huh? So I guess that just means that I just, I like it. Let's just go ahead and say that. I like it. So. After it was released, and it had its uh, theatrical run and all of that, NBC wanted to have the TV rights to distribute it. So they paid $19.5 million for two showings of the movie over a period of five years. And so this is where the TV cut comes from that I mentioned earlier. 45 extra minutes is in the TV cut that is not in the theatrical cut. And that's what ended up being in this TV version. But now the the flip side to that is that since it is on NBC, like it has to be, you know, much more family oriented for viewers and all of that kind of stuff. So all cuss words was pretty much taken out. Any type of language that was going to be seen as offensive was taken out. Anything that was overly sexual, the very brief uh, nudity that was in the film was taken out. And yeah, so you pretty much have a very G-rated King Kong movie at this point in time. So anytime you go to watch the movie, you know, if you have the TV version or the theatrical version on DVD, you pretty much get a, a you know, a choice of which one you're going to watch. I'm either going to watch the shorter uncut version or i'm going to watch the very censored long version like and you can pretty much go from there and the last little bit that i'm going to talk about is there was a lawsuit concerning this movie from universal universal was also in negotiations to make a king kong remake and whenever paramount ended up getting the deal universal filed a lawsuit basically saying you can't because you know we want to make the movie and all of that stuff and they had uh made a verbal agreement that they were going to get the rights to the movie and so there was a counter suit against universal saying like no you're not going to make a movie because then Universal decided they were just going to go ahead and make their version of the movie anyway. And it was going to be called um, The Legend of King Kong. And it was going to be a more faithful remake to the original film. It was going to be a period piece taking place in the 30s and all of that. And so there was a countersuit to try and stop that from happening. And it was during all of this because King Kong has been buried in legal issues for decades it was during this whole big 
thing, this whole big time period where it was pretty much starting to be established that like a lot of stuff dealing with King Kong is in the public domain. And like you just, you know, you can't sue for certain things. Like people can just, you know, they can do things dealing with King Kong that, and you can't just throw a lawsuit at everybody. That's just all it is to it. Some of it is in King Kong, the novel, the novelization to the original film that was written by Edgar Wallace is in the public domain. So the basic story and everything of King Kong, you know, Skull Island, going to the island, sacrifice for the giant gorilla and all that kind of stuff, like all that's in public domain. And so Universal and Paramount, they went back and forth, you know, well, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And so they finally decided to like, okay, look, Universal said that they would withdraw and not make their version of King Kong if Paramount would drop their suits, their lawsuits. Paramount agreed and said that you can make your version of King Kong, but you have to wait at least 18 months after our version is released before you can make yours. And Universal agreed. And because whenever the movie came out, that even though it was a financial success, it was like very mixed feelings from fans and critics, Universal waited and waited and waited until, you know, the right time to be able to make their remake of King Kong, which they eventually did in 2005 with one of the greatest movies. And I have made the argument before that it is the greatest remake of a movie that's ever been done, Peter Jackson's King Kong. And the rest is history, pretty much. So... Okay, guys, that pretty much does it for 1976 King Kong. Like, I like the movie. <laughs> you know, I do. And uh, if you haven't seen it, by all means, go ahead, go give it a shot and everything. Uh, order it on Blu-ray. You know, it just came out on Blu-ray for the first time. So you'll have you a collector's edition. And, um, you know, we'll go from there. And, you know, hopefully... One day we'll get a Blu-ray release of the sequel to this movie that came out 10 years after this one called King Kong Lives. This movie has very little to no redeeming qualities. And I need it to come out on Blu-ray. I need it to. Because every other King Kong related anything that I own is on Blu-ray. And I need that one to come out on Blu-ray so it'll match my collection because I'm weird like that. But uh, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And yes, I will be doing a episode on um, uh, King Kong Lives one day in the future. And it just now clicked in my head that I mentioned earlier that I would say why Dwan is going by the name of Dwan in this movie if you have not seen the movie. Pretty much whenever she, in, uh, when they find her and she introduces herself, she says her name is Dwan. And they look at her kind of funny. And she says, you know, like Dawn. But I just reversed the W and the A because that would make my name more memorable. Yep, that's it. So, <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for continuing to uh, tune in and listen to, you know, this crazy old redneck talk about uh, giant monsters and kaiju films and everything. 
I uh, do not have the announcement for the next episode. I'll be making that announcement on Facebook. Speaking of Facebook, I'm far more active on Facebook and I have, you know, post all kinds of updates and photos and things like that. Uh, anything dealing with the kaiju world, I pretty much talk about. New comics, new animes, new TV shows, new anything like that. I will post about it on there. So if you want to keep very updated with um, the kaiju stuff, Go on ahead and give me a like on Facebook. It is Kaiju Carnage, a Godzilla slash King Kong podcast. Has the same exact profile picture as uh, the podcast here. You know, go give it a like. Give me some uh, support. I, I do this. I couldn't do this without you guys. So, yeah, please uh, give me all the support that you can. I appreciate it all. Um, if there's anything different that you guys want to see me do, you know, or do more of, or not as much of, you know, by all means, let me know, shoot me a message, or just shoot me a message if you just want to talk about kaiju stuff. I mean, I've got no problem with that. I haven't gotten a message in probably about a week or something like that, and I'm starting to miss you guys. <laughs> so, yeah, go ahead and uh, shoot me a message, we'll chat for a little while. Um, I would very much appreciate it if if you've listened to the podcast, you enjoyed it, you liked it, Please go on, you know, Apple Podcasts or Google or wherever and leave leave the podcast a review if you don't mind. You don't have to leave like, you know, a worded review, but if you can just leave stars, uh, I'd very much appreciate that. I've been doing this since December. I only have two reviews on Apple Podcasts right now and nobody left any words. It was just uh, for stars and it's a five star rating but i mean it's only two reviews and i really want to know how you know how you guys feel about the show and all of that and so i think you know reviews would help me out like if and be honest you know if you want to give me two stars give me two if you want to give me three or four give me three or four i don't care you know just do your own thing but you know please you know i'd very much appreciate uh any reviews that you guys would give me so all right, guys, that pretty much does it for 1976 King Kong. Go watch the movie, cringe at every single part that I cringed at, and we will see you guys next Saturday uh, for the next movie that I will announce later on on Facebook. So, all right, guys, take care. This is Cal the Kaiju Guy, signing out.